So hot foot from the South Bank, where um, you've confronted marauding hordes of <laughs> something like four thousand kids in That's one right. day. Yeah. Your your settings of these Roald Dahl pieces, Dirty Beasts. Um, I was thinking, does that refer to the audience or to? <laughs> well, they, they seem to be pretty clean as far as I can see. But, uh... So Ben, with your background, it was hardly likely you were going to be an astronaut or something, was it? They taught me out of it. They taught you out of it. The range of what you do as a musician, the diversity of your musical interests, both as a composer and uh, as a conductor, is pretty dizzying. Let's start with the family tree, because um, it's laden with professional musicians. Everybody knows your dad, of course, Mm -hmm. Raphael Walfisch, celebrated cellist, and many will know of your extraordinary grandmother. Yes. Uh, Anita Lasker-Walfisch, whose book, Inherit the Truth, mm. has been widely known, but also she has been so conspicuous. Tell mm. us a little bit about her, because her story is extraordinary. It is. I mean, first and foremost, my grandma is this most incredibly loving grandma. She's this extraordinarily open, warm person. She's also a Holocaust survivor. So she's seen the most unimaginable horrors. As you know, many people know she survived because she played the cello. I mean, that was the primary reason she was not immediately murdered. She always said, you know, music elevated us above the horror. Whilst we were playing this music, no one could touch us. Mm. The thing about my grandma is that she's always just told us what happened in an unemotional way. I mean, inevitably, you're going to ask what this tattoo is on the numbers, because it's still very much there. And then she, well, this is what happened. And the book that she wrote, Inherit the Truth, started life purely as a document for the family. And then somehow the Radio 3 wants to make a serialisation or present it somehow. And then everyone was like, well, where's the book? And so then it was published. But it wasn't the central experience we have with our grandma. She's just this unbelievable force of nature. She's the strongest person I know. I mean, she came to the premiere of Summer in February uh, two nights ago at the Curzon. She's your latest uh, movie and that rather ravishing theme that we... He heard at the top of the podcast, actually, mm. which we'll hear a bit more of Thank later. You. And yeah, she came to that and she took the bus home. <laughs> so Amazing. She... That's a hell of a lot to, to live up to in, in just as a human being and as a, as a musician. You avoided the cello somehow. Mm. You chose the piano yeah. and more significantly the baton, I suppose. Mm. Well, when did the feeling dawn that you had something to say as a conductor, Ben? It was all about the sheer love I have of the repertoire. Since I was really, really young, um, I was just fascinated by the sound of the orchestra, above anything else musically. The piano, um, my grandpa Peter was just one of the most unbelievable musicians. He would make the piano sing, and he was so warm, and he would put me on his knee and you know, help me play you know, when I was about three or four years old. And so the piano is always a kind of very friendly instrument, and... I found from a very young age that I would much prefer to improvise than learn other people's mm. music. That's interesting. And I think there was a point where I was improvising and, and playing the piano, and it just didn't feel big enough. Mm. I think it was about 14. I remember the feeling of, I want more. I want, yeah. I want more colours. I want more. But that's a composerly um, instinct as is. well. And, and, to and I think it, it started, my conducting really was the next extension for me as a musician. I didn't really have any interest in being an orchestral musician simply because there wasn't an instrument which spoke to me. It was all the instruments spoke to me. There wasn't one in particular.
Hendley's were two very significant names of, yeah. of the podium. Vernon Handley yes. uh, and the great Sir Charles McHarris. Yes. Now, what did you get from both of them? Um, probably different things. Very different things. Well, well, Todd Handley, as everyone called him, yeah. was just the most extraordinarily generous man, wonderful man. Bolt's protégé. So the thing which I got most from Todd was technique. He was pivotal for me um, when I was in my early 20s, doing a lot of conducting, getting a lot of tension. I was doing a huge amount of energy. And after each rehearsal, each concert, I'd sort of just be so exhausted. And he, he came to a, a rehearsal I did, I think. You know, I asked the question, how do you do this and not completely wreck your arms? You know, because it's just physically so demanding. And he looked and said, well, you're just doing too much. You know, it's about efficiency of movement. You know, the famous bolt baton is an enormously Very long, long thing. Yes. Um, and how he do everything just with his fingers, sort of twirling his fingers. He taught me that. And it took me a long time to figure out that, yes, you can actually move this baton in any direction using just your fingers in a, in a musical way. You know, he was all about precision, being extremely concise so that the musicians can look at you and they know exactly where they are, how they should play. And I spent a lot of time, many, many weeks and months over a period of two years, I was working with Todd just on technique. And so I got to a point where I could then adapt this technique to my own personal way of doing it. So it just meant that I could then do conducting without getting any pain and be able to just express exactly what I wanted. Charlie, I mean, he's just a genius. And I, I, I speak about him as if he's still alive because he had that effect on me. You know, he, he was a huge force of nature. And there's a family connection which was, you know, very fortunate. And we, we only really worked seriously on Beethoven's Ninth because I was invited by the Hamburger Symphonica to conduct their New Year's concert where they, every year they do the Ninth, the different conductor. And, and I thought, well, how am I going to do Beethoven 9 in a way where they, they feel excited by the piece again? And I was terrified of this piece. And, and I just it was the very first time I was doing it. And I've done almost all the other Beethoven symphonies, and they are the most fundamental part of my repertoire. But the ninth stands on its own as this unbelievable challenge. How do you make that piece not just about the finale? And of course, Charlie, he said, no, no, this is all about the first movement. You have to make the apocalypse occur. It has to be the most devastating experience imaginable for the audience in order for the joy of the finale yes. to be felt in yeah, all that, its that glory. In the first and it's that, yes, that juxtaposition, yes, yes. The, the yin and the yang, and it was, and the way he, he just somehow took me through that process, you know, I, I was just felt very fortunate to have had that experience to work one, with him. One of the things about McCarris <laughs> was that when he talked about music, it was very, very basic. He was mm. very direct. But something happened his emanations mm. on, on musicians. Mm. And that's a big element of mm. conducting, isn't it? it is. the, what happens between the notes? What kind of atmosphere you create Huge. in the hall? I was very fortunate to spend two years as the assistant conductor in the Netherlands Radio Philharmonic. Uh, Ada Devart was, I was his assistant, and, but part of the role was to assist any guest conductor who came to the orchestra. So, you know, I assisted Gergiev twice and mm -hmm. Ashkenazi and, and, and it was the most extraordinary opportunity to, to learn from many, many of the great conductors who are working today. And I would basically sit in the viola section with my score as if I was in the orchestra and just watch and just, just observe 
how all these great conductors created, or didn't necessarily always create, a, a fantastic atmosphere. Um, and if it didn't work, why? Mm -hmm. And then I had the great advantage of being able to speak to the musicians. And then, of course, I had to learn the repertoire and be ready to do it if they cancelled or got sick or whatever. So that really was the platform which I used to learn about rehearsal technique and efficiency with time and to be able to communicate with the orchestra in a respectful, always a musical way. Because I just learned that it's all about efficiency, uh, not just the time, but of how you communicate so that you're always super clear and it's always about the music. It's never about you. You come through the music but if it's you projecting something on top of the music, then it becomes slightly uncomfortable. It has to come from inside the score. And as a composer, I know what it's like if someone's conducting a piece and they're sort of doing their interpretation. I know, you know, I, I know actually, I'd like you to do what I wrote. <laughs> you know, all these great scores. Of, yes, they, this is a person who sat down and wrote this music yeah. and really meant what they wrote. And let's make that as vivid as possible. So that's the journey I try and go on with the orchestra. said somewhere that at the age of five you saw E.T. and the film made a huge impression, it made a huge impression on generations of boys yeah. um, and girls. When did you realise how big a part John Williams' score played in making that, the emotional punch of that film so pronounced? It's such a wonderful question because when I was five or six, whenever I saw that movie, I, I just was aware that I was being made to feel something bigger than what was happening on screen. Because there was, there's the sequence at the end of the movie where they say goodbye. Yes. And it's very slow. Yes. Uh, and nothing really happens. But if you were to turn the music off, it's kind of pretty matter-of-fact. Yeah. Now, then you add this score, and it turns into the most unbelievable emotional journey. At that age, you don't know why, it just is. I think it's one of the great examples of, of film scoring and how we as composers just create a an emotional journey for the audience and but you don't want them to know that's happening it yes. has to be part of the yes. movie and i just remember the sensation of i think i was maybe about 10 or 11 when i, I remember just going back to it and and just being really annoyed and angry and frustrated with that i just didn't understand like why is this happening and yeah. i remember going to the piano and just trying to figure it out and i sort of vaguely managed to oh it's probably because of this and then i started experimenting a bit more and and it was just that journey of, of just wanting to know, how does this work? Yeah. I, I loved the feeling it gave me, yeah. and I wanted to be able to replicate it. And you do presumably it know that Spielberg cut that final scene around, around the music. The, yeah, around the performance. When it, it just yeah. wasn't quite working. And, yeah, or because it's really difficult to play. Were you, were you aware <clears> early uh, in your life, as early as when you registered that score, did you think one day I might actually compose movie music? Was that even on I, your radar? I, I was really strange in that I knew that's what I had to do from a very young age. I was instinctively drawn to film as a medium from I, I don't know what age, but I can't remember a time when I didn't want to be a film composer. It fascinated me that you could create emotion through music and that can affect film and it means you can be part of something that's so much bigger than you and your own ideas you can be one of the things which creates an experience everyone can get something different out of you you served as a seven-year apprenticeship to dario marinelli who mm. uh, who did one of these podcasts with me actually mm -hmm. when he was scoring glass menagerie at the young oh, theater right. Fantastic. um using all kinds of everyday objects which is one yeah. of his hallmarks in, yeah. in scoring 
did that apprenticeship entail? I mean, I know you orchestrated and conducted his Oscar-winning score for uh, Atonement, mm. and there could be no greater ge- gesture of trust than mm. that no. to give a young, budding composer. Mm. What did you get from, from that apprenticeship? An enormous of? amount. It, it's quite hard to quantify, actually, because we did, I think, 27 scores together over that period, something like that. I can't remember the exact number, but... Um, when we started working together, um, i just done my first film score, Dear Wendy. Uh, I think I was 23. I don't know. It was one of those extraordinary things where I didn't have any film experience whatsoever. Uh, Lars von Trier somehow got my, his hands on some of my music, uh, and Thomas Winterberg as well. And I was hired, and I wrote... It was about 20 minutes in, a, in about two weeks because they didn't really have any time. And Dario heard that score, uh, and it was a very emotional score. It was very melodic. It was very simple. And he really liked it. And at the time, he was doing, I think, five films at the same time. And I think he, he was, it was that case, well, I should probably get someone to help me with the orchestration because he, he mm. did it all himself. And so I met him and we got on really well. It was just, it was through a mutual friend. And it was this sort of uh, wonderful moment where we just clicked on a personal level. And we did a sort of trial score, uh, a, a trial. It was a film score, but it was small. You know, he's very Italian, like, he's extremely loyal. Um, he's a great artist, incredible high-level expectation of everyone around him. And it, it was just the two of us. Um, often um, you find yourself in situations, the film composer, where you do need to have assistants and programmers. And, and you know, sometimes people use other composers to help, you know, finish cues or realise sketches, and you know, just because there's often very little time. Uh, Dario's really kind of hardcore about it. He writes every single note. Everything is his. And if he gets someone such as myself to, you know, when I was doing this apprenticeship, orchestrating, conducting, it was, you know, it was a very, very strict secret, just the two of us collaboration, you know, and, and we developed a language. Now, what I got out of it is, like I say, hard to quantify it simply because you, it's just you learn. I'm just, I learned so much about film music because... He's he's like one of the great film composers of all time in many ways. Um, his his uh, sense of timing and drama and how to bring out characters and emotion and music are really you know it's a stunning stunning skill he has and he would be incredibly generous in terms of allowing me to be creative with his material, uh, but always within certain constraints. I think it's just the old-fashioned sense of an apprenticeship. You you it was always very professional. It was extremely good for me to be exposed to all these different filmmakers as his number two. And just having done all these many, many scores with him, I feel now as a, as a film composer myself, subconsciously, I just feel infinitely more confident now. But. and the strictures, the disciplines of writing for film. Uh, are you one of those people that, for example, will see the film first of all, or just read a script? How much time is there as well? It varies, and uh, whether you see a script or the film often depends on when you're brought on board a project right. and how far they are through the process. Um, 
a movie I, I recently did called Hours, which is um, being released in November. Um, that was a wonderful experience because the director uh, approached me before they'd even shot the film. Uh-huh. So I was dealing with the script and I was invited to the shoot and I went through the whole process with it from the very beginning, which was a really great experience. Um, yeah, and the other end of the spectrum is is scoring a movie in two weeks, which is a movie I, I just did um, called Bhopal, a prayer for rain. It was about the Bhopal disaster in India in the 80s. The situation was pretty intense where, you know, we had to record by this day, etc. Um, and I love that situation because it's a massive challenge and it's really nice to have to call on whatever you've picked up over the years to then just go for it and make it happen. It's, it's a very, it doesn't phase you, very, it doesn't no, freak you out. I love it. I'm sort of a bit, maybe a bit weird in that way. I really <laughs> enjoy crazily difficult things like that. I love the challenge. I love, like, can you do it? Yes. And then, and then you do it and hopefully they're really happy. I find it enormously satisfying. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I've got, I, I, I trust my instincts about when I need to say no because I'll only take it on if I know I'll be able to deliver my best work. And that obviously takes a certain amount of time. Uh, and also if I really connect with the project, uh, and if you know if it's something I didn't really connect with and they say you've got like two weeks, I'd probably maybe say pass on it simply because I probably need a bit longer to get into it. But if it's a project which I instinctively, it speaks to me and it's a tricky situation on a practical level, I'll just do it because... It's just another opportunity to expand what you say as a composer and you know into other areas. Have you got a um, a proudest achievement in, in in movies to date? Is this a score that you're particularly happy with? You know, it's it's always the last thing you've done. It tends to be the thing you're most proud of. But I think with, with film, I'm, I'm obviously very proud that Atonement won the Oscar for, for Best Music. And I'm very proud of Summer in February because uh, mm. it's an incredibly tragic film. Uh, and I remember being deeply affected by it when I was scoring, but I had four weeks to write the score and record it, and off you go. You know, you don't have time to even think very hard. Because I think that's going to be a chart hit. score is I had to write something very honest there are three themes in this film and you have unrequited love so that's one theme you have a girl who is broken inside um, and that's another theme and then you have this unbelievable setting of Lamorna and the beautiful English countryside and the, and this sweeping very English thing and that was another theme I, I never thought they would work together but you know the, the, the film ends in terrible tragedy and, and when I was writing the end credits music I suddenly found that, yes, they actually, you can do them at the same time. You make one the answer to the other. And it was almost my way of somehow reconciling this tragedy by having these two things at the same time. But you get, as a composer of a film, very involved, what I do, with the story. It has to elicit very powerful emotions because then you can put them into the score. Does writing for film heighten your appreciation of the... The freedom you enjoy when you're writing a concert piece, um, presumably in a concert piece you can push the boundaries more. What's the difference in speed and the way you work, or do you always work at a certain pace? 
I like to write very quickly just because when it's fluent, mm-hmm. it's right. Yeah. It's a very fluent, very exciting feeling when you're writing any music or a film score for concert piece. Films have probably helped you in that respect. You I know, think so. Because of yeah. the, you know, the spontaneity the fluency, yeah. of what, your response to what. Oh, definitely. Well, I feel like it. I can take on more commissions because I know I can do them quickly. But it doesn't, I, I, I'm such a perfectionist. Uh, and stickler for detail and I will not let anything out the door unless I know it's the best it can be and the the process of of writing film scores is definitely you know there's a craft to it which which helps with concert music but I never feel restricted when I'm writing a film score I mean I think you're implying that Mm. you know when you're writing a concert piece you have more freedom Mm. yes you do but that can be a curse too because you have no parameters Mm. and it's like well where do you start you know write a piece you know, write a violin concerto. Which well, I, I was going did. to come to the violin concerto, uh, which was yeah. premiered late last year. Yeah. Um, and that would be a significant work in any composer's catalogue. Yeah. Well, it was a wonderful, very organic project that came from the LA Chamber Orchestra, and they commissioned it for who, someone who's a very dear friend, Teresa Stanislav. She's, she's married to a friend of mine in LA. Um, I knew the personality of Teresa, um, but I didn't want to make the piece only about her sound, I wanted to, to make a statement of what I feel like a violin concerto could be. The uh, process of writing a concert piece where the, your client, as in the orchestra who commissions it or whoever commissions it, the parameters are you have a half hour, uh, you have uh, this amount of rehearsal, and we need it by this day. And that's, and that's all you have. And off you go. So what do you do? Well, what I did for that piece, exploring in my own way, what that instrument's capable of and, and doing it in a really vivid way and thinking, well, the violin for me, because my mother's a violinist, has always been uh, this incredibly virtuoso uh, and very fun instrument. But what is virtuosity? Well, it's, it's this ability to execute something with such skill, it's almost superhuman. But I didn't want to do that in an obvious way. So I made the first movement um, all about shifting light in music, it's incredibly quiet. Now the violin part is extremely difficult because it's so quiet and so fast. And and but it's it's all about this shifting prism of light. And and then I was thinking, what about the other side of the violin, which is the gypsy side, the zingarese style, which is really percussive and really sort of gritty and dirty. So that's what I made the finale about. And then the, the second movement was just somehow. I don't really know where it came from. It, I wrote it uh, very quickly, I think, in a couple of days, and, and it was just a very, uh, just a very intense piece of music that just had to come out at that point for some reason. I don't know why it just came out like that. I want to write a ballet um, because oh. dance has always been a huge part of my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I wrote a, a, a large ballet for the Rombert Dance Company 10 years ago. Um, I got this opportunity to work with uh, Rafa Bonicella. His approach to choreography was, here's some choreography, what do you think? Can you do something that kind of conveys this? And I go, yes, but I'm going to do something completely different too. And he said, okay, great, because then I can bounce off that. So it was like we craft this piece together. 
Um, and I just loved that experience, you know. And I just feel like, yeah, the time has come to write another ballet. That, that's important. And I'd also would love to write an opera, but simply because mm. for me, uh, you know, this is the, the need for people to experience things that are larger than life uh, before cinema was possible, was realised in opera. I, I'd like to do something quite, quite small uh, in terms of the, the, the number of actors and musicians. But that still makes a really large statement, and, and there's there's a few libretti options on the plan right now. How do you juggle all these things, Ben? I mean, I know it's all music, but they're diverse activities. You know, conducting career can make huge demands on you. Certainly, being a movie composer does, and mm. accepting commissions for concert works mm. will. You know, I'm often asked that question, how do you do all this stuff? And I go, well, it's because I love music and, and I'm given the opportunity to do these things. So I'm going to do it because it, 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 it all fulfills this need I have to express myself as a musician. Um, and I feel that my work as a conductor is, a, you know, influences massively, positively my work as a composer because I'm dealing with musicians mm. and I'm, I, I'm interacting with audiences and I'm, and I'm gauging responses in an incredibly visceral, vivid way, you know, you stand up and you perform in front of people and you gauge their reaction and the process of rehearsals involved learning. You always learn every time you do a rehearsal with the orchestra, you learn something about the orchestra. I mean, this probably I just did with London Philharmonic is a, is a great example. You know, it was really important that um, the, the piece tell, tell stories uh, for children. Um, and I went out of my way to, to just really do it. And I was you know, in a really vivid way, and I, I probably overscored it, because then, of course, I was doing all these massive fireworks, and it was a bit too loud for the narrator, so there, you know, and of course, I've done so many, many things for orchestra, and I was thinking, wow, I've still managed to overscore this, and, and, and there, you know, there it is, you take it in, and, and next time I do a film score, which involves maybe a children's theme of some sort, you know, I know now to make it a little bit more transparent. Uh, and and so I have a wonderful opportunity with my activities to allow them to help each other, I get the feeling that movie music is incredibly important to you. It is, And yeah. that you see it as, you know, a real labour of love. And you're right. I, if I'm just totally straightforward with myself uh, and honest, the thing which I have always loved more than anything else is film music. And that's the thing which I'm pursuing with all my energy and passion right now. My work in the concert hall and for concert music is hugely important and I will always pursue that and it's hard to say one's more important than the other because it, you said oh, it's all music yes it's all music and that's why I do things in different areas because I, I'm given the opportunity and I will if I have time and I know I can do it well I will say yes because I, it will give me an opportunity to, to grow as a musician and that in itself will mean that whenever I take on another project be it film score or anything else uh, I'll be that much stronger to do the best job I can. <laughs>